Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. Good morning. Today is going to be our last session on Jonah, uh, and there's a lot of information to go through. Uh, I hope it's going to be edifying, but before we go through it, let's let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, so much for your word, for every good and precious gift that comes from your hand, especially your son Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. Father, we lift your name on high this morning and ask for guidance from your Holy Spirit to go through these scriptures and make the necessary connections in our minds, to uh, move upon our hearts that we would see things the way you've described them in your word and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Father, what a good and gracious God you are to allow us to gather together in your name to worship you uh, and to bestow your love upon us. So, Father, we just commit this time to you right now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so we've been going through Jonah. Uh, Last week we went over the last chapter Today, I want to go over some things, parallels between the Old Testament book of Jonah and some parallels and similarities that we're going to see in the New Testament. So, I'm going to start off with uh, the Apostle Peter first. So, does anybody know what the Apostle Peter's name was? Who is Peter? Simon Bar... Simon Bar Jonah. Oh... Right away, we see a little connection there. Jonah's name was Jonah, son of Amittai. Peter was Simon bar Jonah. Jonah avoided the presence of the Lord in Jonah 1.3. Peter avoided the presence of the Lord in Luke 5.8. He says, I cannot be in the presence of, he was in the presence of Jesus and said, I can't be in your presence, right? So Peter walked away. In that sense, Jonah was on a ship hit by a great storm. Peter was on a ship hit by a great storm. The sailors on the ship with Jonah were filled with great fear. Peter and the disciples on the ship were filled with great fear. These are all parallels that we see between the book of Jonah uh, and particularly Peter. Jonah was on a boat running from God and was thrown off. Peter was on a boat running to God and jumped off. Peter jumped off, walking on the water to Jesus, towards God. Jonah was thrown off the boat and exiled away from God. Again, some similarities we see. Jonah didn't want the seamen on the, sh- on the ship to be saved. Peter was a seaman who got saved. Reluctant Jonah fled from Joppa to avoid ministering to the Gentiles. Reluctant Peter went to Joppa to minister to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. Right? Remember, he was called to go uh, witness to Cornelius and his family. That was in the town of Joppa. 
Those are no coincidences. And what does the word Joppa mean? Beautiful. All right. Uh, Jonah got on on the 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 boat in the sound of Joppa and was going to Tarshish. Remember, we went from Jonah was bringing God from beautiful to broken. He needed to deconstruct him in order to reconstruct him in the in the image of God. Okay, with with God's spirit to see things the way God saw them. Jonah was told, arise and go. Peter is told, arise and go. Jonah was restored and given a second chance. Peter was restored and given a second chance. Three times he denied Jesus, and three times Jesus told him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He was restored by God, same as Jonah. The Gentiles in Nineveh believed Jonah's message and were forgiven. The Gentiles in Caesarea believed Peter's message and were forgiven. So Jonah was, was commissioned to go to Nineveh. The Ninevites, were con, which were considered Gentiles. Peter is also commissioned to go to the Gentiles, which was foreign to his understanding at that time. He thought the Gentiles were dogs. Little did he know that the Gentiles were part of God's plan of salvation. Same as Jonah. He didn't recognize that... God wanted to save some of the Ninevites. The Jews thought that Israel owned God. They didn't realize that God owned Israel as well as every other nation under the, under the sun. Jonah's three-day stay in the belly of the fish reverses his rebellion against God, and then he goes to preach to the Ninevites who get saved. Peter's threefold vision from God, Peter, kill and eat, reverses his negative reaction to eating unclean food and then preaches to the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, who get saved. So we hear, we see this um, denial that Jonah has towards going to do the message. We see Peter's denial to go do the message, but then they both do. Jonah was mad that the Ninevites were redeemed. The Jews were mad that the Gentiles were redeemed. Okay, So these are just some similarities between Jonah, the prophet, and Peter. Who else might be a, a, a similar Jonah? Who do you think? Paul, certainly Jesus, but definitely Paul. So we're going to go through jo- uh, Jonah and Paul right now. Both were heading to Spain. Jonah was heading to Tarshish. And in Romans 15, Paul wants to go to Spain. Both sailed on the Mediterranean. Jonah boarded the ship on the Mediterranean to get away from the Lord's calling. Acts 27, it was decided that Paul would sail for Italy. He sailed on the Mediterranean according to God's calling. Paul obeyed, right? Jonah disobeyed. Paul obeyed. Both encountered a great storm on the sea, right? Jonah's great storm comes upon the ship. And in Paul, a great storm comes upon his ship. Both crews threw cargo overboard. Jonah 1.4, they threw cargo over to lighten the ship. Acts 27.18, they threw cargo overboard to lighten the ship. One rejects the Lord's guidance. The other receives the Lord's guidance. Jonah, the pagan captain, tells him to pray, and Jonah doesn't. In Acts 27, an angel gives Paul assurance. He passes that information and assurance onto the crew. Right. So Jonah withholds information. Paul reveals information and gives it to them. The captain advises Jonah 
Paul advises the captain. Jonah and Acts 27.10. So those are some similarities between Jonah and Paul. Jonah didn't listen to the captain. The captain didn't listen to Paul. Right? So here we see certain things happening, um, showing the similarities between the prophet Jonah and we can consider Peter a prophet in that sense and Paul a prophet in that sense. So now ultimately somebody had mentioned that Jonah is a prefiguring or a type and shadow of Christ. The first thing we, we should look at is, oh, I'm sorry, Jonah was a prophet to the Gentiles. Where am I? Yeah, Jonah was a prophet to the Gentiles. Paul was also a prophet to the Gentiles. Before we go into uh, explaining how Jonah is a type and shadow of Christ, we need to know what a type is. A type is a person, event, or institution in the redemptive history of the Old Testament that prefigures a corresponding but greater reality in the New Testament. A type is thus a copy, a pattern, or a model that signifies an even greater reality. So when we look at Jonah and we look at the things that he went through, he was pointing to a greater Jonah who would eventually come, fulfill everything that Jonah did, but in a much, much greater way. The greater reality to which a type points and in which it finds its fulfillment is referred to as an antitype. So really, Jesus is going to be the antitype, the antitype. Am I saying that right? Um, Jesus is going to be the antitype to Jonah. Okay, because he's going to fulfill these things in a much bigger and better way. So let's start exploring how Jonah prefigures Christ, because this is important, obviously. So Jonah is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Jonah is called the son of truth, the son of faithfulness. Jesus is the truth and the son of God. God commissions Jonah to go to the wick, to wicked Nineveh, but Jonah ignores and runs away. God commissions Jesus to go to a wicked earth, and Jesus listens and comes willingly. Right? Both were sent into a wicked place. The earth was wicked when Jesus came, right? Jonah fled the presence of the Lord, while Jesus sought the presence of the Lord. Jonah's message was one of repentance. Jesus' message was one of repentance. Jonah's message gave Israel 40 years to repent. Jesus' message gave Israel 40 years to repent. And neither did, by the way. And we're going to go through that a little bit later. Jonah boards a ship. Jesus boards a boat. The Lord hurls a storm upon Jonah's ship, but Jonah is sleeping. A storm comes upon Jesus' boat, and Jesus is sleeping. Jonah is sleeping in rebellion. Jesus is sleeping in faith. The sailors on the ship panic. The disciples on the boat panic. The storm is appointed by God and stops after Jonah is thrown overboard. The storm is appointed by God and is calmed after Jesus tells it to stop. The sailors come to know God through Jonah. The disciples come to know God through Jesus. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Jesus would say, I am a Hebrew and I am the Lord. A little bit of a different statement there, right? Yeah, kind of, right? That's where the type stops and the anti-type begins. 
Okay. Jonah said, I know it's because of me that this storm has come upon you. Jesus would say, I know it's because of you that this storm will come upon me. A fish swallows Jonah, and he's in the belly three days and three nights. Jesus is crucified and buried, and he's in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah receives grace and mercy. Jesus receives judgment and wrath. Jonah cries out from the belly of the fish, and God answers him. Jesus cries out from the cross, and God is silent. Jesus asks for his, Jonah asks for his own forgiveness. Jesus asks forgiveness for his own. Jonah prays the Psalms from the fish. Jesus prays the Psalms from the cross. The waves and billows pass over Jonah. The waves and billows fall on Jesus. Sinful Jonah would learn obedience through suffering he deserved. Sinless Jesus would learn obedience through suffering he didn't deserve. Antitype. Jonah is saved and spit out onto dry land. Jesus is cursed and sent into the grave. The man Jonah was thrown overboard by fishermen. The man Jesus would make us fishers of men. Okay. So any questions on the types and antitypes? Go ahead. The spitting out, um, it, it, it could. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're right. All right. Jonah is saved and spit out into dry land. That dry land is, is promised land. Yes. Jesus is cursed and, and uh, spit out of the grave, so to speak, um, to come and, and rescue us. Yes. Good, good, good point. So these are all types of, of Christ. Okay. Jesus is the greater fulfillment of Jonah. He is what the whole book of Jonah is pointing to. Remember, at that point in time, the Israelites did not think that Gentiles were going to be offered salvation. Again, they thought they owned God. So Jonah was reluctant to preach to the Ninevites, although God doesn't do anything without revealing himself to the prophets, revealing his plan to the prophets. Jonah knew that when he went and preached repentance to the Ninevites, they would, and they would receive the favor of God. All the while, Jonah knows that his country, Israel, is unrepentant. They're in idolatry. And he knows that God will use the Ninevites to discipline Israel, which is going to mean disaster for Jonah's tribe. It's going to mean disaster for Jonah's family. It's going to mean disaster for Jonah's friends. So Jonah is reluctant to do it. He has good reason in the sense that he loves his family and he loves his countrymen. However, he was not willing to to follow through with the plan of God. And what do we read in the Old Testament? Jesus says, there's going to be people who love mother and father more than they love me. Your mother and father are going to hate you to a certain extent when you follow me. Don't be surprised that they hate you. They hated me first. So when we follow God's plan, sometimes people we love, people we know, people we have relationships with, are not going to understand why we do what we do. They're not going to understand why we proclaim the gospel, which tells people that they're not good enough inherently to earn eternal life. They need to be transformed. They need to repent of their sin and be conformed to the image of Jesus. Okay, A lot of times we make the mistake of making the point of salvation heaven. Right? How are you going to get to heaven? 
You know, why do you want to get to heaven? And we, we, we dangle heaven out as the goal. When the goal really is hatred of sin and transformation. Right? Once we hate our sin and we're born again, yes, we're on our way to heaven, but it's the process of the sanctification that has to take place so that we become better, uh, better representatives of God on earth. Okay? So yes, the, the benefit of, of salvation is heaven. We're, we're going there. However, don't forget justification and sanctification. There's this process of sanctification that we must go through in order to be transformed into the image of Jesus, right? And what happens when we're transformed into the image of Jesus? We, we do our good deeds and we glorify our Father in heaven. So our good deeds flow from our salvation and they glorify God. We don't go to heaven because we're doing good deeds. We do good deeds because we're going to heaven, because we're being sanctified. God's bringing that out of us. Okay, And that was one of the things that we learned going through the book of Jonah. How God did not give give up on Jonah. God set his covenant love on Jonah. He, it was a grace that pursued. It was a grace that pulled him into relationship with God and accomplishes what it was intended to do. Okay, So, in essence, a lot of us are like Jonah. We go through this process of sanctification that sometimes we're pushing against. But he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. If he set his covenant love upon you, he will bring you to where you need to be. Okay? Any questions on the types of Jonah that we see in Christ? I don't think this is a, a comprehensive list. This is just some of the ones that I saw and some of the ones that I looked up. I'm sure there are lots more. I mean, God's word is manifold. Uh, we, I, I'm not able to exhaust it. But these are some, some good ones, no? Okay. Yes, Ted. Could you elaborate a little more on what the meaning of antitype is? An antitype would mean uh, a greater example of, of what the type was. So all the types of Jesus are going to be imperfect, right? Like we have David who goes in and he slays Goliath. That's a, that's a prefiguring of Christ. Now, David was a sinner. He had armor on. He used the stone, right? Jesus is not a sinner, and he is the stone that cuts the head off of Satan, right? He, he, he cuts the serpent off at the head. So Jesus is a greater understanding of Jonah in his sinfulness um, slaying, slaying Goliath. So uh, obviously, you know, when you compare anyone to Jesus, it's always going to fail in being completely accurate because all the, all the types are done by sinners. You know, imperfect men. Look at David. He's a man after God, God's own heart. Yet he, he commits adultery. He commits murder. You know, with Bathsheba. So, I think that's where the type is gonna end when you, when you relate him to Jesus. There's certain things that David did that prefigure a Christ. David was a king who sat on the throne. Jesus is a greater king, a perfect king, who will sit on the throne forever. He's never getting off. Praise God. So Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all these types, but in a perfect way, such that none of the types can be a direct parallel with Jesus. Right? In the same way, when we attempt to um, give an illustration of the Trinity, how many times have we talked about this? 
know, at the tables. How are we going to explain the Trinity to somebody? Well, you can't use anything in nature to describe the Trinity in, to, to someone because it's nature. It's made up of materials. God's not made up of materials. So any example you use, you know, everybody likes to use water. Oh, water could be liquid, solid, and gas. And you just committed the heresy of modalism. You know, Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. No. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an analogy, but a bad one. Any analogy we give here on earth is not going to properly reflect God because he's holy. And that word holy means other. He's beyond anything we can see in this world. He's beyond. So what are you going to use in this world to describe God who exists outside of this world, who created this world? You know, and then we can go through a bunch of different reasons why God is a trinity. When we, when we talk about God as love, how can you be love if you're alone? Okay, love is active. Love needs a recipient. And then you have the act of loving. So you have the lover, the loved, and the act of loving, which points to the nature of God who's triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. If your God, like the God of Islam, uh, is alone, you need to create someone to love in order to exercise love. Right? You have to exert power in order to love. So the point of that worldview would be power. Because power comes first, love comes second. Not with God. With God, love comes first, and his desire to reveal himself to people comes next. So God inherit, the triune God is essentially love. We can say he is love because he's love, he's lover, loved, and loving at the same time. The God of Islam is not. He has to exert power in order to create something to love. He needs to create in order to love. Our God does not need to create in order to love. He is love in and of himself. What else can you point to in the world that is going to properly reflect that understanding of God's nature to somebody? There's nothing in the world that's truly triune like that. All right? God is one. He's a unity of diversity. That's where we get the word universe from. Unity of diversity. God is a unity in community and a community of unity. And on a different level, it solves the problem of the one and the many, but we're not going to get into that, right? Because I'm probably not equipped to do it, um, and it's it's fascinating. But anyway, let's move on from the, the – t- does that does that help you, Ted? Probably too much at this point, right? Okay, overload. Just dump the bucket. All right. How does Jesus now view Jonah? Because – Jesus mentions Jonah in a very specific and significant way. He calls Jonah, okay, what, what he's going to do, he calls it the sign of Jonah. And we're going to read out of Matthew 12 if you want to follow along. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus himself says that he's a type of Jonah, 
but he's greater than Jonah. Again, the antitype is is always greater than the type. All right, so Jesus obviously is the greatest when we're making any analogy towards him. So what's the connection to Jonah and what is this sign? Obviously, Jesus is foretelling them about his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus would be in the tomb for three days, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, and they came out to preach a message of repentance. The problem is that these scribes and Pharisees, the scribes were like the attorneys of the day. They would write out the law and try to explain it. The Pharisees were the ones who, who followed it and, and would uh, help explain it to people and adjudicate people uh, people's issues when they came to him. So the problem is that the scribes and Pharisees who know, who know better and have seen Jesus' miracles, they've heard his teaching, they've witnessed his authority, and yet they still deny who he says he is. Jesus was pointing to himself as the Christ, as the Messiah. The scribes and Pharisees recognize that he is the Messiah. But they ask him for a sign. They should have known who he was. right? He wasn't trying to hide that from them. But they persisted in denying who Jesus claimed to be and sought to kill him. Remember, this passage, Matthew 12, 38 through 41, comes right after Jesus warns the, the scribes and Pharisees about the blasphemy, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, all right? committing the unpardonable sin. This is a sin that will not be forgiven once you commit it. It's a sin that cannot be forgiven. And this sin consists of knowing who Jesus is, acknowledging his miracles and his authority, but attributing it to Satan. To say that Jesus is actually an adversary of God's plan and not the ambassador of it. And this was what the Pharisees did. It was a deliberate deception and suppression of the truth. They recognized that Jesus, all the things that Jesus did were pointing to the fact that he was the son of God. Right? And Jesus gets into arguments with them all the time. He ends up calling them a brood of vipers. What's the viper? Serpent. You're of your father, the devil. He looks at the Jews and says, you diligently study the scriptures. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me for eternal life. They said, well, we have Abraham as our father. Right? They kept denying who Jesus was and his authority. They knew who he was, but before the people, they claimed ignorance. Give us a sign. How many signs had Jesus given them already? What's easier to say? Take up your mat and walk, or your sins are forgiven. But so that you know who I am, take up your mat and walk. It's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. There's no visible, you know, uh, manifestation of that. But if I say take up your mat and walk, and you're paralyzed, and you get up, take up your mat and walk, uh-oh, <laughs> he is who he says he is, right? So Jesus' re- rebuke here couldn't be any stronger. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but none will be given it except for what? The sign of Jonah. The Pharisees would lead a rebellion against Jesus, bribe Judas to trap him, bear false witness to convict him, lie to Pilate to condemn him, and ultimately call for his crucifixion to kill him. All the while the crowds are cheering, let his blood be upon our hands. 
They had no idea what they were doing. And this plot by the Pharisees would all lead to Jesus' death, his burial, and resurrection. Three days in the tomb, and then up from the grave. Just like Jonah, who's in the belly of the fish three days, okay, and gets spit out on dry land. This, the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, would be the sign of the Pharisees and the Jews' judgment. So much so that the people of Nineveh, who were murderous barbarians and who hated the Jews, will rise and condemn the religious leaders of Israel as guilty because one greater than Jonah is here. They should have known. If the people of Nineveh are rising up and condemning you, you know you've done something wrong. These were murderous barbarians. Jonah was brought back to life to preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites. Jesus was brought back to do the same, but the Israelites rejected that message. What was Jonah's message? Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. How many days after Jesus' resurrection did he ascend into heaven? Forty. Right? And then the, the, the uh, spirit was poured out on the 50th day, Pentecost. Right? So 40 days. Again, the sign of Jonah pointed to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the Pharisees' denial of the Messiah, Messiah eventually leading to their destruction. Jesus would say to him, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was an Ichabod situation. The glory has departed. Jesus has left. He walked out of their temple leaving it desolate. After Nineveh repented, when Jonah preached to them, how many years did God give Israel to repent? Huh? It's the only number we've been talking about for the past. Yeah, 40. Thank you. Right? He gave them 40 years to repent. After, after Jonah preaches to Nineveh, we know that God prevented, he stopped Nineveh in their uh, eventual attack on Israel. It was called a military pause. Not in the scriptures, but in history. They actually call it a military pause. Because at that time, Nineveh was just routing all the nations around them. To, to all of a sudden see them stop is like miraculous. Like, what happened? What happened was Jonah went into them, preached this message, and they repented. They had conviction, and they stopped doing what they were doing militarily. How many years after Jesus ascended into heaven was the temple destroyed? Forty. All right, we're getting our, eh, all the answers. Forty. Right, it was forty years. God gave the Israelites another forty years to repent. They didn't, so then he destroyed their temple, which at that time was their only means of making sacrifice necessary for salvation. God was ending the Old Testament sacrificial system, and ending that covenant. That was it. It was an exclamation point. Done. It's over. All you have now is faith in Jesus for your salvation. Okay. Any questions on the sign of Jonah? All right. So we, we see that it was, a, it was a message of judgment against the unbelieving Israelites who knew better. And not only did they know better, and they, they recognized the authority of Jesus, but they attributed what he did, his teaching, his authority, his miracles, to the enemy. They attributed what he did to Satan, which I see as the unpardonable sin. 
So what else is significant and special about the book of Jonah? Jonah was only one of four writing prophets that Jesus mentioned by name during, during Jesus' earthly ministry. Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, and Jonah. But Jonah received more than a mere mention. Jesus actually identified himself with his three-day journey into the belly of the great fish, noting it as a foreshadowing of his own death when Jesus would spend three days in the heart of the earth. Now, earlier, when I was going through the parallels between Jonah and Jesus, I, I alluded to Mark chapter 4, verses 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And, you know, it's only in God's providence. I, I must have read this passage about 15 years ago, and I knew that it had something to do with Jonah, and I was just never able to figure it out. But finally, by God's providence, I was assigned the book of Jonah to teach it, and now I get to actually dig in and understand what this is all about. Okay, so what, it, what, are, the, what are the parallels with, with this specific uh, passage? Well, we know that the prophet Jonah slept in the boat in a storm. Jesus slept on the boat in a storm. In both instances, the winds and the waves were obedient to, obedient to God's voice. In Jonah, we see the extreme sovereignty of God. I, I hate to even use that word extreme, but you have to because so many people misunderstand what sovereignty is. We see God's sovereignty over the physical creation. God hurls the storm at, at the boat. Jesus speaks to the storm and stops it, identifying himself as God. In one instance, the prophet Jonah slept the sleep of disobedience. And in the other instance, the prophet Jesus, Jesus sleeps the sleep of the righteous. One was commissioned to go to a city that would repent. Another was commissioned to go to a city that would not, Israel. Jonah slept in disobedience, wishing to die to stop the message. Jesus slept in obedience, knowing that he'd die to advance the message. Jonah would say, I want to die so that they don't get saved. Jesus said, I want to die so that they will be saved. Jonah sacrificed his life so the people, the Ninevites, would die. Jesus sacrificed his life so that the people would live. Jonah was trying to die to avoid a people he, he didn't know would repent. Jesus was willing to die to confront people he knew wouldn't repent. Jonah. Jesus would rather die than to see these people repent and be saved. Jesus would rather die than not see these people repent and be saved. Jo Jonah, although a sinner, pridefully thought he deserved salvation. Jesus, although perfectly innocent, in humility, accepted death. Jonah wants into the sea to keep people away from God. Jesus wants into the sea to unite people to God. So we see this whole passage in Matthew pointing to a greater Jonah, uh, Jesus, who's going to bring his people to him. 
Okay, it's a it's a, it's a parallel, an unbelievable um, likeness to what we see. So, are there any questions uh, with regards to this passage and anything like that? Yeah, Ted. It would have been good if they kept answering that last question on the last slide. That's so dramatic. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think it obviously was a willful suppression of that, and I think it would go one step further in trying to deceive other people uh, and convince them that he isn't who he says he is. And by attributing what he's done, his miracles, his authority, his signs, to the enemy. Uh, once you do that, I mean, people, who's going to want to follow, you know, Satan? You know, the Pharisees, the scribes, they say this guy is is, is of the devil. Um Jesus says, how can a house divided against itself, against itself stand? So the, the accusation from them who knew better uh, was to attribute this to the enemy. And that's a deception. To de- that's meant to deceive people who were potentially going to follow Jesus. Which, again, that's, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, a sin that will, will, will never be paid for. Okay? Um, so... Here were some of the questions that I had because I'm, I'm kind of done with the, with the content with some things maybe we can, we can discuss. Has the modern-day church become a Jonah? Has the modern evangelical church uh, sought to comfort itself rather than comfort others? Yes. I, w- I would say in the sense that they, they no longer recognize their responsibility in some ways and in other ways have rejected their responsibility to go out and, and uh, fulfill the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I would definitely say that. And then in other senses, they've, they've openly accepted things that are, are clearly wrong and sinful. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I would say yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, go ahead, Maria. I think um, what we have to recognize is that uh, we're called to be of the world, but not in the world, right? I'm sorry. We're called to be in the world, not of the world. That, that, that wouldn't have worked well. Good thing we got it recorded, right? All right. So um, when we go into the world, we should not reflect 
the, the, the worldly values that they hold. We should reflect the values uh, of, of a Christian worldview. Do you think that they're going to like that or dislike that? They're going to dislike it. What are they going to do in response? They're going to hate you. They're going to rebel. They're going to try to hurt you. Unless God opens their eyes. Right. And, and we trust in the sovereignty of God that when we go out and we preach the message that it's going to do what it's intended to do uh, in the hearts of people. But they're going to try to hurt us. I mean, we see it. We see it now. And it's it's just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. So, you know, Jesus says, before you become a Christian, you know, before you you turn, count the cost. There's going to be a cost associated with this. But if you're to die to yourself and not follow the passions the worldly passions of the flesh and of this world, you're going to have to be a light in a dark place. And that's going to be painful sometimes. Ultimately, we are here for the glory of God to further his kingdom. We know that there are people in the world who God has chosen who need to hear this message. And we will be part of God's plan and enjoy the blessing when we bring that message and see one of those people whom God chose come to life. Yes. To your point, Thinking about the fact that Jonah knew that God was going to save these people. Mm-hmm. We as Christians should know that he was told the harvest is, is, is life, right? Mm-hmm. We should know that there are those out there that we need to go and speak to that are going to be saved. Mm-hmm. So many times we run away from that responsibility, just like Jonah refused. Right. The, and, and the question becomes, why are we running away? What, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of physical persecution? Are we afraid of monetary persecution? Uh, what 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 is it that we're afraid of? Ultimately, we have to be bold. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And if it hurts, it hurts. Now, we also want to be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. We don't want to go in and pro- intentionally provoke people, but we want to be a light to them. Okay? We don't want to be condemning of people because we're worthy of being condemned ourselves. We want to go in like doctors diagnosing a situation, diagnosing a patient, and offering them the cure. And saying, listen, you will stand before God and have to give an account of your life. Turn, trust in Jesus, repent of your sin. It's sin what you're doing. Turn from that, trust in Jesus. Jesus made provision for, uh, God made provision for sinners in his son Jesus. It's the most loving act you're, you're ever going to uh, encounter here on this earth. Right. Just another thought. It's kind of off topic a little bit, but I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, and, and oddly enough, a lot of them have brought up the uh, the, the quote that uh, I know I used to misuse quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, being uh, an example by by preaching by example as opposed to with the word. No, we're called to to go out and spread mm-hmm. the word verbally. Spread the word. And I think that's an important point to bring up. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think the quote is uh, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Right. right? And the parallel to that is feed the poor and sometimes use food. You know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't equate. You can't preach the gospel by your actions. You need to speak that. Because listen, if I never talked about Jesus at my office, okay, and but I lived a, a, a godly life and I was tried to be righteous in everything I do. Maybe my coworker is going to see that and say, wow, you know, I, I, I want to be like Anthony. You know, I, I, you know, I, I hope I can be, you know, 
like him in what he does. And ultimately that misses the point because I'm trying to be like Jesus, right? He's, he's my model. I'm trying to model my life after him. If they try modeling their life after me, they're modeling, modeling their life after a sinner. That's not going to get them to heaven being good. They're sinners already. So if I never open my mouth and talk to them about the cure and talk to them about who I'm following and what I'm trying to emulate, I didn't do my job. Right? We're called to preach the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. So we know that when we proclaim the message, the people who, um, who God has chosen, they're going to be given hearing to hear that message. And it's going to affect their hearts in such a way that they now are going to want, their desires are going to change, and they are now going to want to follow Jesus. But if I don't open my mouth, I basically tell them, be like me, which is the last thing I want to tell them. Ask my wife. All right. Um, any closing comments? Nothing? We're good? All right. Well, this was a, a, a true joy for me to go through this and convey it to you guys. Hopefully, um, we'll all be edified by it and, you know, seek to preach the gospel and get ourselves out of the center of our own world. I think that was one of the things that Jonah recognized. He was in the center of his own own world when God gave him the plant exceedingly happy, when God took away the plant exceedingly mad, <laughs> you know. So sometimes we might look at God's blessing, some of the things that he gives us, you know, designed to comfort us and aid us, and then all of a sudden those things get taken away, and we might have this desire, Lord, why? What are you doing? And questioning God, where we should say, this is all for God's glory. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The bottom line is, more people are going to be drawn to Jesus in your trials when you worship Jesus than in your triumphs. All right. It's easy to praise God when you're on top of the mountain and things are going well. Of course. That's what the devil can, you know, accuse Job of. Of course he's going to praise you. Look what he's doing. Look what he's giving you. Okay. Let's take it all away. Now what do you do? You praise him. Like Job. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. That's the message. We have to die to self. Right? Live more and more for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an incredible blessing it is to have your word, to have your spirit, to know, Lord God, that you work all things together for good, even when we don't understand if something is good or not. We might think it's bad, but Lord, we know that you who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. Father, to you, we give all the glory, honor, and praise. We thank you for Jonah, and we thank you for one greater than Jonah, Jesus, who gives us what we need who saves us when we don't deserve to be saved, who loves us when we don't deserve to be loved. Father, we also pray for the preaching of this of the word this morning for our pastor, that he would speak clearly, that he would glorify you and be faithful to the text, Lord, and that that message would do what it's intended to do in the hearts and minds of those who hear it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? 
In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.